Welcome to the Senior Story Hour, where we share poems, stories, observations of life, written by the Franklin Senior Center Writers Group. Once again, as we approach spring, our writers are gathered together yet again. I'm Peter Jay, and with me today are... What? Kathy Salzberg. Steve Sherlock. Pat Winiarski. Al Larkin. Bill Wiley. And so we are officially looking forward to the warmer days ahead. Yay us. Yes. Yay, yay, yay. Second that. As we record this, it's 50 degrees outside. We're happy about that. The grass is still covered with about a foot of snow. <laughs> I know. <laughs> what, what happened to the January thaw? <laughs> yeah, right, right. You, I think you had to blink and miss it. <laughs> yeah, really. So I'm saying we dive right in and that we consider what it is that Pat Winiarski might offer us today. Thank you. A bunch. A bunch of bears is called a sloth. A gathering of crows, a murder. A household full of cats, a clowder. Groups of owls form a parliament. Is that the reason owls are termed wise? Yet a group of nocturnal, hairy-nosed wombats is termed a wisdom. Baboons form a troop, quails form a bevy, but ferrets form a business, which is rather funny, as ferret means little thief. A cluster of mice causing a homeowner anguish, that assemblage is aptly called a mischief. Coyotes run in bands, Cheetahs run in coalitions, lions have their pride, and pelicans their pod. This is all too much for me. I'll stick to calling groups a bunch. One word of warning, though. As we learned from Peter Pan long ago, never smile at a basque of crocodiles and never interrupt a congregation of alligators. Mm-hmm. There's power in numbers. Yes. <laughs> I remember going to the dry cleaners many years ago, and they asked me how many shirts I had as I threw a whole lot of them on the counter. And I hadn't counted them. So I said, so he says, how many shirts? I said, uh, uh, a metric bunch. He <laughs> 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 knew me all too well. And coincidentally, one of the poems I have queued up is called Orange Numbers. So it might be appropriate to follow Pat with this. Go for it. <laughs> Once upon a time, we were talking about, you know, little things around the kitchen. And if you rolled an orange round, it would peel properly. I did write a poem once upon a time about that. So Orange Numbers. If we roll our orange round first, it will peel like an apple second. So you can give me a quarter third so we can be slobber our mouths with its juice fourth so we can have a magnificent excuse for a kiss sixth and clean up our act. Fifth? Fifth? Oh, yes, there was a fifth. But by the time that gets passed around and back to us, there'll be nothing left. Let's have another orange. <laughs> And are, aren't you glad you had the fifth? <laughs> so 
sorry. I know I went there. I took. I, I always pick the low hang. I always pick the low hanging fruit. Hanging fruit. Oranges. Yes. Yeah. You, you didn't have to go far out on the yeah. limb for that one. But uh, boom. <laughs> Need a rim shot over here. Bada <laughs> bing. Yeah. That was back in my college days, and uh, as an athlete, you couldn't abide when you went to a party. So fortunately, the young lady who accompanied me was also an athlete. So uh-huh. we had another orange. I won't go. We we won't go further as to where that went, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a couple of shirku. They're used to the shorter haiku, Sherlock version of haiku. So I think at one point we had talked about. Uh, certainly, I'd spent many years, as I'm sure others have, commuting into Boston, and the Franklin Line has a number of stops. So while I'm away on the train, I would compose a shirku for each of the stops. So Franklin Line, Islington. And I'll read them twice because they're so short. Westwood's only stop on the Franklin Line, is it or isn't it, Islington? (laughs) Westwood's only stop on the Franklin Line, is it or isn't it, Islington? Norfolk. Pitch fay- pitchfork to bale hay, butter knife with dainty <coughs> stones, Franklin's neighbor, Norfolk. Pitchfork to bale hay, butter knife with dainty scones, Franklin's neighbor, Norfolk. And forge park. Coals give heat, bellows fan flames, tongs reach through to the end of the line at forge park. Coals give heat. Bellows fan flames, tongs reach through to the end of the line at Forge Park. Next stop, whoever's up next. There you go. I got a, a comment. Uh-huh. Sure. On a, a complaint. Okay. People are getting a little too prickly lately, even with their pet groomers. It seems to me there's an epidemic of rudeness going around. I think it started with road rage, that increasingly common occurrence, which takes place when a driver runs out of patience and throws a temper tantrum behind the wheel. The expletive-laden explosion might have been provoked by being cut off, tailgated, or stuck behind a senior citizen with Florida plates who permanently keeps his directional signals on. Maybe some madman on a mission keeps honking his horn to push you from his path, or a thrill-seeking teenager peels by in his boombox on wheels, flipping you the bird with a big grin. Or perhaps you passed a trucker who took it as an insult to his manhood. You catch his evil grin when you check your rearview mirror and discover you're about to be rammed by his (laughs) big rig. How about the woman in the minivan who tore past you at the mall, stealing the parking space you'd been staking out for 15 minutes. We all get peeved at such inconsiderate louts. It's how we handle our frustration that separates the crass from the courteous, and it can get downright ugly. A Milwaukee cab driver recently ran over a passenger's luggage because he thought his tip was too small. In my home state of Massachusetts, a tailgating incident threatened to turn deadly when the party who felt aggrieved whipped a crossbow out of his trunk. It must have something to do with that fast-paced lifestyle. We're always running late for something, 
A life run by a ticking clock can turn into a ticking time bomb. Rattling around in our overstressed minds are such slogans as, don't be a wimp. Don't let them push you around or even first come first served. I've been witness to supermarket rage when a woman in the 12 items or less express line counted 13 items in the shopping cart in front of hers and started hurling produce. I saw waiting room rage firsthand when a man sitting next to me at the doctor's office for over an hour started spitting swear words and shredding old copies of People's Magazine. I'll show you the most beautiful people of 1999, he fumed. My late husband, one of the most compassionate men I ever knew, uh, turned into Attila the Hun at airports, using his duffel bag as a battering ram to push his way through the crowd. I've also seen line rage, line rage at restaurants when would-be diners got hissy with the hostess convinced that the 40-minute wait could cause them to drop from starvation right there in their tracks. I must admit I have my triggers too. Your call is important to us, drones the robotic voice, which interrupts the elevator version of I want to hold your hand every five minutes as I hang on hold, waiting to talk to my insurance agent. Then there's the, the ear-shattering whistle which greets me if I dial the wrong area code when making my reminder calls to customers. Just the other night, I had an attack of remote control rage after surfing all 55 channels to find nothing but football discussions on fashions on the red carpet and fading movie stars doing infomercials. We all know your beauty products are fabulous, share, but could, could those frequent facelifts have anything to do with how great you look? It's grooming shop rage that really scares me. The other day, I had a citizen who was absolutely abusive because she showed up on the wrong day with her standard poodle and decided it was our fault. Another woman told me, my dog came home with kennel cough the day you groomed him. She was adamant, even after I explained to her that infectious tracheobronchitis has a five to seven day incubation period. I'm telling you, he got it here, she fumed. Call me crazy, but all I could think of was, wait, there's a fly in my soup. <laughs> my daughter and business partner, Missy, has encountered the phenomenon with stressed out commuter types who pound their fists on the door because she does not want to open early, at least not till she puts the lights on. <laughs> then... There are the ones who want instant service when they pick up their pets, even if they come early and there are several clients ahead of them. Not surprisingly, such high-maintenance folk breed similar offspring. Go get my dog now, bellowed one such pint-sized prodigy as I processed his mom's credit card. There are several strategies to combat these rude encounters. In the case of road rage, no one to get the heck out of the way. Practice being hard of hearing when some belligerent bully rolls down the window to impress you with his colorful vocabulary. If you notice a conga line of vehicles hanging off your bumper, pull over and never ever smart mouth the state trooper. Those of us who work the other side of the counter should put ourselves in the deli clerk's shoes 
when some pushy patron ignores the number system and clears a path to the counter with his shopping cart. We should have some empathy for the waitress who brought us the overcooked steak. While using the phone, we could try giving ourselves a manicure while hanging on hold for customer service and practice yoga breathing while in line at the movies. We shouldn't expect the worst in people. Hold the thought that the travel agent will book you a cheaper flight, smile at the checkout clerk, and ask how her day is going. If your gut reaction to my helpful tips is, eat my shorts, Pollyanna, maybe it's time for you to seek professional help. I'm not just blowing smoke here. I've tried this strategy myself just last week. I had to go to the registry of motor vehicles and people in my state consider that a nighttime parachute truck behind Taliban lines. I decided to give positive thinking a shot. I told my daughter that I expected to be treated with courtesy and efficiency. She told me I shouldn't be sipping the cooking sherry that early in the day. (laughs) (laughs) Although I was in and out in 15 minutes, new license plate in hand, I was very pleased. The registry clerk smiled at me and told me to have a nice day. Sure, I was shocked but not as much as the guy behind me. He showed up in full battle fatigues with a box lunch under his arm, accompanied by a Rottweiler named Spike. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Lots of lessons. Yeah. You cover the gamut. (laughs) So Big Bill. Okay, I'm I'm going to read an older poem I wrote about uh, Franklin. Uh, Franklin, my hometown. I, I don't, I don't think, know if I've read it on the air or not. Go for it. Franklin sure is my hometown. I love it so much, I never frown. A lot of changes have been in the works. Not for the better. Sometimes it hurts. The storefronts change over time. I still remember the five and dime. The Rome restaurant, it sure is still there. The pizza is great. I live very near. The supermarket Brunelli's has come and gone, but... Star Market and Tushaws, the memories live on. It's a shame the old fire station was torn down, but times go on, memories will never be gone. The movie theater where I've been many times, Hey There with Yogi Bear lives on in my mind. Uh, New stores and and apartments where Franklin Furniture used to be in Jimmy's drugstore are gone now you see. J.J. Newberry's, I remember it well. Bought my Beatle albums there, just I can tell. My first sight of Santa and his beard so white. I ran screaming and cried with all of my might. Uh, Dean Jewelers, where I got most of my 45s in in reel-to-reel tapes. I got them with pride. My memories live on. They will not, they will never die. I love them and keep them with such pride. They are part of my being, my memories I keep seeing. Franklin Shore is my hometown. My frown is now upside down. I still live in the family house, you see. I feel so happy, memories come to me. My memories won't die, they live in my mind. But things go on, the passage of time. I love it so much, Franklin, my hometown. Veterans Memorial, don't put them down. 
My memories won't die. They'll never be go away. I guess I'm all done. Nothing more to say. Very good. I think right. it's a pretty good one. So we have Faith and Al, or Al and Faith. What will it be? Go ahead, Al. So this is a, uh, a time in my life, uh, a tragic time that uh, many others have suffered as well uh, way back when. And it's titled Mother Trump's Wife. John and Gertrude were married in the late 1920s, just before the Great Depression that brought on a hopelessness to many families, including the Larkins. They began their family with five sons and two daughters in those years. The couple needed to be adept to the challenge so many faced. What they lacked in material goods had to be made up in their faith in each other, together with God and their hope for the future. With hard work, some welfare help from President FDR, they got through it. Bring us to the entry and coming out of World War II. It was now the late 1940s. Their children had seen much affection from their hardworking dad for themselves and for their mom, who always seemed to be up, singing all those cowboy songs, including the one with the title, Oh Johnny, my dad's name. Some hardworking men became hard drinkers in those times, and my dad was one of them. I remember my mom taking, talking to her father's sister, Aunt Anne, about a man they knew who just bought a liquor store. And my mother, who had lots of sayings, said, he'll never have a better luck, a bit of luck. She wasn't against having a drink. It was just all that drinking. We were usually always glad to see our dad come home and for the affectionate embrace he had for our mother. The tractor's trolley was at the top of our street on Dudley. And my dad was coming home from work, could walk down to our house on the next corner. Or there was the tavern just a few steps away. <laughs> Too often it was the tavern. Inside, there were mooches giving him strokes so that he might buy them one. And how my mother used <laughs> those nickels and dimes that he would slide across the bar, asking for another and another. When finally leaving for home, she could only hope the neighbors wouldn't see him stagger down the sidewalk to the house. Those were the only nights we hated to see him coming. Who knew in those days of alcoholism as an addiction or dependency someone could have with an impact on family life? We children were huddled together in the middle bedroom off the long hallway that led to the front door, listening to our mother being berated by our father so unjustly and being accused of carousing with other men. <clears throat> a total fantasy. He's doing it again to the mother we love. These are fearful times for us as the muffled bellowing comes through the walls of our large nine-room apartment that was once a rooming house called The Cottage. There are five sons and two daughters, of which Trudy was the oldest, and now myself, just 16, am the oldest. 
as my older brother, John, has gone off to the Navy. I love both my father and mother, but this has to stop. With fear and trembling, I made my way into the hall that leads to an alcove and into the dining room. The sound was even louder now as I was about to enter my parents' bedroom. It was a large room with, a bay, with bay windows and a fireplace. My mother was standing on the left side of the bed, away from my father, who was on the other side, pointing and chastising my mother from there. Of the five sons, I knew I was my dad's favorite, but that may not save me tonight. As I crossed over the threshold, my mother said, here's the boy for you. I cried out, leave her alone. My father was a giant of a man who lifted his large hand and pointing said, Albert, get out of this room. The back of that hand from a man who knew boxing could send someone tumbling across the room. Then all I could say again was, leave her alone. My father then said, she's my wife. This went right over my head, though it sounded like there was some kind of authority in that that gave him such a right as was inherent in being the husband and had a perfect right to do so. My being spirit-led in the first place, I was given to say, she may be your wife, but she's my mother. Then my father said, well, I'm your father. Then the cruelest thing his favorite son could say was, well, why don't you start acting like one? Mm. David, with his smooth stones and a slingshot, could not have delivered a more terrible blow, causing my father to double over with grief as he stepped through the large open pocket doors into our living room. When I look back today, how I wish I had gone to my dad to say I was sorry for that. Please be good to our mother. An embrace from my mother would also have been healing. I was just a kid. As painful as it was though, that was the last of all that type of incident related to the drinking. Little did I know what kind of baggage my dad was carrying in those days relative to his own mother and father's relationship. My father may have been trying in a somewhat vicarious way, doing what his father should have done with his wayward wife, Georgiana, my father's mother and our grandmother. My dad, John, was born to my grandmother, Georgina, at 16 years of age. She was married to my then 30-year-old grandfather, also named John. He was an attractive and vital blacksmith from the small village she grew up in. She was having one child after the other in those days, in what seemed to a misplaced youth for this lovely, vivacious young woman who had this love for my grandfather. She no doubt became overwhelmed with all the care and giving for so many. 
As blacksmith for the village, he was busy providing for the family and the community, not seeing this need in his wife, her searching for love in all the wrong places. My dad must have seen too much of this as his mother was unfaithful on several occasions during his youth. He loved his mother, of course, but it was ever so fond of his father and surely shared in some of the pain his dad was going through in those days. It seemed to scar him still right through his later life as father and husband. I have fond memories of my grandmother as she was this very sweet Nana, as she was to be called, not grandma. The first time I laid eyes on her was when my aunt Anne picked up my brother and I, and my brother John and I, when we were 10 and 11 years of age at the old railroad station. And she brought us through the front door of Nana's home on Prince Edward Island, Canada. <laughs> she then called up to her mother Mom, come see who's here. When our Nana came to the top of the stairs and looked down, she exclaimed, Oh, well, the dear, 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 dear little boys. <laughs> that was the beginning of affection, I remember, of this sweet, lovely face we called Nana. When some of the skeletons of our family were revealed, later in my life, I could only wonder if my father John was working out his demons from the past of his mother's infidelities, perhaps being released in him under the influence of alcohol when he was accusing my mother of that behavior. What my dad's father John could and should have said and done to stop his mother, Georgiana, way back when. I can only wonder, judge not, we are told, lest you be judged. This is what I have from my grandmother, and bless her to this day. And the good man my father was, who became a victim of a bad habit which led to addiction, resulting in some of the negative effects on an otherwise happy, loving family. Wow. Well, I don't know. I want to follow that. <laughs> here's, a, here's a picture of uh, the family in 1933. Wow. wow. Sitting on our front steps. I was the uh, third oldest of those little children. Mm -hmm. Cool. It's quite a set of insightful observations. And a gutsy move. Mm. It set a tone completely different from mine. We can create some space or Keith can no. do some magic to provide an interlude. <laughs> yeah. Different is good after that one. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking of um, mine is about the inauguration poem. You know that inauguration on January 20th? The Gorman's. A young poet into the casual conversations of many. People who wouldn't ordinarily pay attention to poetry suddenly were exclaiming how interesting the poem was. Amanda Gorman, the inaugural young poet laureate, became an overnight phenomenon. As a poetry lover, I was happy to hear Amanda's accolades. I was happy to hear her words discussed. It was wonderful. 
Eagerly, I printed out her inaugural poem so I could read it slowly, digest her words, and contemplate her images. What I heard was the ground rumbling. It was John Greenleaf Whittier and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, John Milton et al. turning in their graves. Hmm. Okay, so Amanda Gorman doesn't write Miltonic verse. But isn't poetry a subjective medium? Yes, but what makes a poem poetry? My definition of poetry is that it is a genre full of imagery, metaphors, and lyricism. Mm -hmm. For example, John Milton calls time a subtle thief of youth. Emily Dickinson calls hope a bird that perches in the soul and the fork in the road that Robert Frost didn't take refers to the decisions a person will take in his life. Does Amanda Gorman's poem, The Hill We Climb, have metaphors? But I'm an old fogey. And poetry changes over time, and it's art, so it should. Robert Frost writes, when an emotion has found its thought and a thought has found its emotion, you have poetry. Amanda Gorman's poem does do that. Emily Dickinson said, if I read a book and it makes my body so cold, no fire ever can warm me, I know that is poetry. In The Hill We Climb, her poem captures that emotion poignantly. So it does seem that our inaugural poem is poetry. Well, what about lyricism and rhythm? I noticed that her poem sounds like the music called rap. Is Amanda rapping? There's no percussion instruments beating out a staccato rhythm, but her style is one that you would use in what's called a poetry slam, and that's it. Hmm. Amanda Gorman's inaugural poem, The Hill We Climb, was delivered in poetry slam rap. Her vocal delivery was a personal style and rhythm appealing to the current sensibilities. I wonder if I could rap as if I were in a poetry slam. I could try. And that's how my poem called American Vernacular came to be. The inspiration was my daughter, Karen. And in expressing my feelings, the poem turned out to be a protest rag so let's see if a senior citizen can rap poetry in slam style. <laughs> it's going to be tilted a little bit. There you go. You got to put it on backwards. Yes. Okay. We are set. Cool. Collective behavior, condemn the innocent, a phrase so pervasive, so persuasive, permeating our colloquial speech. First, there's the woke people. Virtue signaling, co-opting our speech, our values, our customs, displaying just how unwoke they really are. Before we saw it, they proved it. Now, who will call, cancel the cancel culture? And who will they attack now? Are there any heroes left? The statues rode off in the night, taking their side of history with them. Team mascots were tossed along with proper nouns, street nouns, school nouns, even town nouns. Is being left right? 
is right politically correct? Who's left behind? Is my face mask an affront to your personal liberty? Am I being sexist, ageist, racist, or prejudiced? And finally, the most puzzling expression of all, of all is one that I take personally. It's the label Karen. A Karen describes a privileged, entitled, demanding, obnoxious, white, middle-aged woman. Tell me how an innocuous name became the quintessential pejorative slang label for the angry repackaged soccer mom. The Karen Mem is an affront to the traditional meaning of the name. Accidental irony, sanctimonious morality. It's insulting to all 1,111,739 American Karens. It's rude, offensive, and just to show how culturally elite you are. The original meaning of the name in Greek is purity. In Japanese, water lily. Danish means wholesome. Opposite of the current snarky fad. I call on everyone, educate yourselves, learn to communicate better, explain ideas in coherent sentences, not a label, not a quick tweet. Read up on it, learn. Learn to be respectful, learn to be kind, learn to be knowledgeable, be blessed for hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Oh, learn. Oh, wow. Well done. Great topa. Great topa. Fabulous. Very good. Fabulous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was wonderful. Yeah, that was good. Very, very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Props and all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the challenge lies before me to follow that. <laughs> the other thing that was impressive to give a little segue while you prepare something, if you haven't already, the um, I, YouTube fortunately has the archive of a number of Amanda's performances over the prior years. And it was really interesting to listen to her voice because she had a stutter and a speech impediment. Um, which is one of the things that caught her into the uh, attention of uh, Biden and his campaign, because clearly he also suffered from that as well. Yeah. Um, and she studied uh, Hamilton and continually said the so one of the particular songs to practice and get the uh, uh, enunciation, pronunciation, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, clearly the rap is there. But then when you go back and look at over the time, her, vo her voice clearly has improved. So yeah, that was one of her better performances, which yeah. is not to take anything away from what did it before, because for her to do it with the stutters and the, yeah. it, mm. those were still impressive those days. Yeah. The name of my piece is March On. Okay, I like March On. <laughs> March is so fickle, its promise a tickle of warmer days yet to be. Yet I remain wary as temperatures vary with tall mounds of snow around me. But time mm. finds a way to brighten each day with a little more light at the end and the rising of hope on its ascending slope of optimism that I transcend. For the coming of spring is a time that can bring a new lightness and joy to the heart. 
Let this be the year that we be of good cheer as the dark days of COVID depart. Mm. With each vaccination, we feel jubilation to ease the emotional cost. So let it be done as we welcome the sun and never forget those we lost. Oh, that's cute. Uh, Very well. Yeah. Wonderful. And a good ending. Very nice. At the end. Yeah. Wordsmith nicely, yes. Very nice. And they're saying now it's up to a half a million people. Mm -hmm. I know. It's a lot of people. Too many. A lot of pain. Yep. I saw a graphic, I think, on the news of the New York Times or Washington Post. If everybody was on a bus, the bus mm-hmm. line would be almost 100 miles long. Eek. Oh. That's a lot of people. Well, I think that covered the round. Mm-hmm. so. I would agree. Once again, we can declare victory. Yeah. Hip, hip, hooray! Yeah. Hip, hip, hooray! <laughs> How do we do that? that (laughs) And with that, once again, we bid you a fond adieu as the writers group. If you'd like to be a member of the Senior Center Writers Group, just contact the Senior Center. We'd love to have you on the program. We'd love to hear what you have to say. I'm Peter J. And for all of our writers today, Kathy Salzberg, Steve Sherlock, Pat Winiarski, Al Larkin, Bill Wiley, thanks for being with us here on Senior Story Hour. Until the next time, I'm Peter J. Remember, be they laced with gravity, levity, wisdom, or whimsy, the meaning, experiences of life become a little larger when you share them, when you take a moment to commit pen to paper and just write. This is FPR, Franklin Public Radio.